0: the truth news network fake news circular logic disinformation outright lies what do you do when the truth goes underground well here let me get that door for you
1: welcome to tnn
0: the truth news network
1: and your host is dan newman i have some news for you the truth is not underground it's right here at Truth News Network, especially today, right here on TNN Live. You made it to the weekend, and spring break in most places around the country happen next week. So you headed to the beach, or maybe you're going to the mountains, or maybe you're just going to sit around the house. Whatever it is that you're going to be doing, enjoy the weekend whether this is spring break coming up or this is just another weekend, hey, spring is just around the corner. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for some. I love it when you can get cold when you want to get cold, like go inside and get in the air conditioning. But if you don't want to be cold, you don't want to be hot and sweaty either. The only real times you can do that consistently, in the South at least, is in the spring and in the summer. We figured it out a long time ago. Some of you that are still trying to figure it out, here's how it works. Use the air conditioner and use the heater. Those are the best ways to kind of normalize the temperature in wherever it is that you live. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Yeah, we're here, and we have much to dig into for you today and with you today. Just make some points for you before we get cranking. Saturday means Saturday bullet points at Truth News Network. If you haven't tried it, give it a whirl. I promise you, you've missed some of the big news this past week. There's no way you can absorb it all. You just don't have time. This is what I do, and I miss a lot of things, but it's not for lack of digging. We dig for you. We're going to bring you the top stories, the most important stories of the week, in bullet point format. Now, how does that work? Well, the story will, it'll open up with just a paragraph of introduction, and then we begin with bullet points. There's a bullet point there, and to the side of it, there's two or three sentences that explain that particular story. At the end of those two or three sentences, if you've already heard about the story, or maybe you don't want that story information, whatever it is, you just go on to the next bullet point. But if you want to get a detailed story, there's a little blue arrow at the end of those couple of sentences, click on that arrow and it will take you to a full story. And you can do that over and over again. Usually it's between 10 and 15 bullet points. And uh, to be quite honest with you, we're the ones that pick the stories that explain what we're talking about. And we don't necessarily always pick a story that's published at a conservative site. We want you to get immersed as we have to every day here. And the other side, you know, the rest of the story. All that being said, you don't have to miss anything over the weekend. Sunday, some Sundays we publish a story at truthnewsnet.org and it depends upon what's going on in the world, what's really important and what we think you shouldn't have to wait till Monday morning to get your information about. Thank you for being partners here with us at Truth News Network. We're glad you are along. If you weren't here... I don't know that we would be doing this. You know, there's something that we, uh, we really haven't weighed in too much here on the air, and that's the 1619 Project. By now, everybody knows what it is. So I, I want to talk a little bit about it as we open the show and wait for everybody to get here. Go grab a cup of coffee, probably your second or third, and just relax for a few moments with us. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember any other time, any time, when you can point to one single occurrence of the massive government overreach we're witnessing every day here in the U.S.? Well, looking back over our shoulders, we did have Watergate. Richard Nixon's administration was full of some really shady characters. Several went to jail. Many believe Nixon was pretty shady himself. Actually, the American people are kept in the dark on many administrations' actions but I doubt these historical instances I reference are near the government intrusion into the lives of Americans that we are watching, we, today, in our government. What has changed in America that allows this to happen? How has it been normalized so quickly with Americans just shrugging it off? I don't think my parents would not have questioned authorities in the 50s and the 60s if the same as is happening today happened then. These curious occurrences seem to be happening far more often and are far more sinister and evil than ever before. How so? Well, let's go down memory lane. Earlier this year, Joe Biden asked social media companies to engage in even more censorship to divert attention from the wholesale failure of his administration to shut down the virus, you remember that? In a televised speech, he said this, I make a special appeal to social media companies and to media outlets, please deal with the misinformation and disinformation on your shows. It has to stop. So CNN denounced misinformation that blamed high gas prices and inflation on the Biden administration. Media outlets have accused Joe Rogan of spreading disinformation about COVID-19 and the vaccine because he dared to ask scientific experts questions on his show on these topics. Other examples of ideas that the legacy media has alternately labeled as misinformation and disinformation include assertions that COVID-19 escaped from a lab in Wuhan, China. The idea that there was some orchestrated manipulation of procedures to favor Biden in the 2020 election. Hunter Biden's laptop, that it offered evidence that various forms of international corruption had enriched the Biden family syndicate, in fact, made the Biden family syndicate. And that powerful non governmental organizations and other world governments are leveraging our pandemic to facilitate a great reset of the global economy. The campaign to ban ban these claims, most of which are true, folks, indicates not a dangerous spread of disinformation, but a dangerous weaponization of the concept of disinformation. Why? To insulate the institutional left from criticism and opposition. It's not an accident that virtually every claim that is consistently labeled as disinformation threatens the policy agenda of the Democrat Party or parts of their agenda that they're too embarrassed to talk about publicly. Disinformation Is no longer a concept used to separate truths from falsehoods. In the past few years, it's been rhetorically intensified to circumvent the question of truth entirely. I don't see people running after it. I just don't. The large portion of the populace that is insulated, has been insulated. They don't want to try to push through and get to these facts. They just listen to whatever media outlets are on their push button, memory buttons in their cars. That's a means to annex the public's role in assessing the validity of reporting, placing this authority solely in the hands of who? Experts. Experts who have the exclusive right to say what is true. So, understanding the differences between misinformation and disinformation and observing how these concepts are arbitrarily applied, it's crucial to figuring out how our media and other institutions undermine genuine public deliberation, which is a prerequisite for any functioning democracy. Since the rise of Trump, and the media's waning ability to control the terms of public debate in the information age, legacy and government adjacent outlets have been in a sustained panic. They're panicking folks about misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation is information that is simply wrong or maybe a mistake. While disinformation is the deliberate spread of false information. In other words, Whereas the misinformer doesn't know what they are saying is false, the disinformer actually knows. So despite these differences, the terms are used interchangeably by the media at large. This is important for you to recognize. The left accusing Joe Rogan of spreading misinformation or disinformation. Well, answering the question is difficult. It requires some kind of knowledge of what Rogan knows and what he doesn't know. If he doesn't know that what he says is allegedly false, it doesn't mean he's a bad guy. It means he needs to be informed of the truth. But if he knows what is allegedly true and then decides to ignore those truths or to talk about the opposite just to advance his agenda, this is more nefarious. That's disinformation. The line between misinformation and disinformation is deliberately obscured, and it's done to ensure that people gathering information that is convenient for those in power can be smeared as a threat to the catchphrase runs, our democracy. The motives of the populace must always be characterized as nefarious, to acknowledge the that they engage the dialogue in good faith would require that all those in power enter the sphere of debate. They don't do it. They don't want to do it. Don't talk to me. Don't get in my face. If you don't agree with me, just accept this. I have my truth. You have your truth. The debate process that I just gave you an example of is what they're trying to shut up, and they avoid it. You can't lose a debate if the debate never happens. Last year, at one particular HBCU, those are colleges, primarily black African-American colleges and universities. At one of them, and I won't say which one it was, they received a Black History Month email announcing that Nicole Hannah-Jones, you remember her? She's the founder of the New York Times Times, magazine, 1619 Project. She was going to give a virtual talk with students and faculty. Uh, Remember, these are primarily African American Americans. Her presentation was called Inclusive Excellence in the Way Forward, Truth, History, and the 1619 Project. Now, the central claim of the 1619 Project is that protecting slavery was the real Impetus for forming the American Republic. She said, basically, it's all about slavery. Therefore, our narrative in the nation and identity should be looked at primarily through the lens of slavery. The project is named 1619 because that was the year that the first ship of enslaved Africans arrived on the American coast, an event that 1619 proponents cite as the true founding of our nation, instead of 1776. The claims of that 1619 project have been definitively debunked by the leading historical experts on America's founding. Therefore, Hannah Jones has little authority to talk about history and truth. Many real journalists knew the affair would be tightly managed to ensure that no one on that campus could disrupt the celebration of that 1619 fiction. Her presentation lasts 75 minutes. During that 75 minutes, attendees saw almost every hallmark of disinformation that could possibly be included in it. In other words, it was evidence that Hannah Jones was spouting falsehoods, that she knew they were false, and that she was presenting those falsehoods as true why? To manipulate the public perception of reality and to get people to think that slavery is the foundation of this nation. She opened her presentation. By reminding the audience that her primary training is in journalism, not history. Yet she claimed that people tend to think of the 1619 Project as a work of history. So she's a journalist. If she's not a historian, how could she write a history piece? This is false. Sean Willens, the Princeton history scholar, published a letter with four other historians among the most prestigious experts on the topic of the early republic. And that letter detailed the basic errors upon which the 1619 narrative was built. And their dish, uh, dissing her, it included those little things called facts. In the pages of The Atlantic, Willens explained that they wrote the letter because of specific statements that, if allowed to stand, would misinform the public. Hannah Jones never responded to the volume of evidence marshaled by these experts against her account. Instead, she said she would have taken them more seriously had they contacted her or the New York Times before they published the letter. Therefore, she missed an opportunity to give a revised, more truthful account of history. Instead, today, she continues to rehearse The same lies. This is the definition of disinformation, and she aggressively spread it at her talk, and she's still doing it today every time she gets a chance. An indicator of disinformation is the absence of important context that would mitigate the true status of whatever a speaker says. The so-called fact-checkers of the mainstream media, they get this, they understand this. They often label assertions false on the grounds of, and they put it in their findings, missing context. Yet the fact-checkers are uninterested in Hannah Jones' disregard of important context that would limit the force of all of our arguments about the 1619 Project. In it, she argues that anti-black racism is the DNA of our country, As if slavery is unique to America, (laughs) Hannah-Jones avoids the global history of slavery, an institution that has existed worldwide, impacting peoples of every race, color, and creed since the beginning of um, men and women. It's a pretty long time. Further, the project is silent about how widespread slave ownership was in antebellum America. The majority of free people in the antebellum South never owned a single slave. Now, this is not denying the specific inhumanity that African slaves endured in America, but to deflate the claims that all white Americans held and hold collective race liability for the institution and that anti-black racism in the Americans' DNA Finally, of course, the project ignores the role that Africans had in facilitating and maintaining the slave trade, which undermines the idea that American slavery was an atrocity perpetrated by white people. This information is purposely left out of the racialist account of American history. Why? Because it would diminish the power of that account, a blasting siren of disinformation. Disinformation can often be recognized when you see its purveyors shifting standards for verification. Truth is critical for historical work. It matters what actually happened. Duh! (laughs) That's what history is about, telling what actually happened. So the impetus for this 1619 project, according to her, Hannah Jones, is a concern for the truth. She claims that a nationalized amnesia afflicts Americans. Now, where the heck does she get that? She means that slavery and its true role in the early republic has been forgotten or is unknown to all of us. But slavery is constantly invoked in the public sphere relentlessly these days Hannah Jones also insisted that the 1619 Project ensures that kids don't get a whitewashed version of our history, her words, implying that the traditional accounts of American history are fabricated. She further states that white resistance to critical race studies being taught in classrooms, by the way, she denies that critical race theory is being taught in classrooms, but anyway, she says, White resistance to the CRT in the classroom is a product of their frustration that they can no longer control the narrative. In short, Hannah Jones frames her project as a truth telling exercise that aims to display and get rid of truth, untruths. And yet, when experts on the history of our country contest her claims, by demonstrating they're factually false, she just retreats to the concept of narrative, which implies that all historiography is just storytelling and that no story can be wrong. I mean, this is a vicious circle, but this is how this happens, and this is how it's maintained. So from this perspective, all history is merely a subjective interpretation. Doesn't that make it really easy to say you're a direct descendant from the queen or the king of this country or that country? It's all a subjective interpretation. She used this fig leaf repeatedly in her talk, referencing the experts who have debunked her account. She said, it's fine to say, I disagree, but do you need to discredit it? Well, heck yeah, that's the whole purpose. If it ain't true, it ain't true, right? Truth matters, not just for its own sake, but because one's narrative and one's perspective undermines one's moral claims, whatever they may be. Attacking traditional understanding of our history as false while hawking historical fiction as truth Folks, that defines disinformation campaigns. A final sign of disinformation is an adamant refusal to engage with ideas and claims at odds with the propaganda effort. During her talk, Hannah Jones dodged the scholarly attacks on her project. She said they are driven by credentialism, suggesting that somehow scholars have rejected her work because, as experts, They feel entitled to be the arbiters of history and are jealous that a journalist took on the task of writing history. But her scholarly critics have taken issue only with the presentation of historical facts, not her individual, personal, professional status. The disinformation campaign is about disinformation. (laughs) Duh. Hannah Jones' work is only one, just one example of disinformation from the left. Yet the term is applied exclusively for dialogue that comes from the political right. Think about it. You don't hardly ever, you hardly ever hear someone on the right going after someone in the left, giving them disinformation. It comes from the left primarily its interchangeable uses of misinformation and disinformation, it's all part of an effort to make these concepts more editable to be effectively applied to any undesirable information that gets past the censors. In other words, they want to control it all. They want to control the labeling of it. They want to control how it's disseminated and all that matters about them having the ability and the right to do so is just because they say so. This all means the media's constant cautioning about disinformation is a disinformation campaign in itself. Anytime you hear them go after the other side, you can bet, and we see it happening, revealed every day. We've said it here for years at TNN. Whenever you hear or see somebody screaming and hollering and blaming somebody for something, you can pretty much bet the same thing is going on in their lives and they're just deflecting our attention away from theirs to our alleged version of that. The weaponization of this content, concept of disinformation to get to the political ends that they want is a greater threat to whatever's left of American democracy than any isolated piece of actual disinformation could ever be. Democracy is built on an assumption that everyday citizens can discern the truth and have the capacities necessary to develop and implement situations to the problems they face through the truth. The elite disinformation campaign or disinformation implies that regular Americans should not play any meaningful role in governing, in administration, or even deliberation. It insinuates they don't have the cognitive ability to learn the truth and know it when they see it. Folks, it doesn't get any more anti-democratic than that. So let's wrap this this up. What's the common denominator of all this? Is there a common denominator? (laughs) The answer is yes. The common denominator for all these, right now in today's America, I'm not talking about in our rearview mirror, I'm talking about today, is the President of the United States, Joe Biden. Let me elaborate just for a minute. A decade or so ago, conversations among conservatives about the state of American politics began to slide further to the right. Why'd that happen? One reason for that is that liberals were having similar conversations that were sliding further to the left. The commonality between the political thinkers, that became rarer and rarer. Before too long, it seemed as if purposeful landmines of fake facts appeared everywhere and that no political party held an exclusive. The two-campaign career of Barack Obama as president and Joe Biden as VP, it opened the door to weaponized differences between Americans. Nobody can successfully argue that Obama was a masterful communicator. He's one of the best of all time. It'll surprise some to learn that Biden was something of an orator himself. The problem with each was that the messages that they were artfully spun to convince that their way was the right way. Anybody who disagreed with that got to be labeled as one less than worthy of even having an opinion worth hearing. Political divisiveness with nothing new, but the weaponization of differences and using that as a tool to try to destroy others simply for their varying opinions. On political matters, they found out that's a powerful weapon against one's political foes that left only a little opportunity for somebody to rebut. Such began the practice of using this to create and use disinformation aside misinformation to obliterate one's political opponent. And it worked pretty well when you had somebody like Barack Obama and Joe Biden back then that were fluent. Orators, and very convincing. This whole process, it carries over, and we live right in the middle of it today. Very few people dream that the structure of authoritarianism contained both of those processes, dis and misinformation, and had worked effectively through generations of heavy handed government leaders. The difference between the brutal style of World War II Adolf Hitler and Barack Obama was simply this. Hitler, thought making his way to the top of the heap in Germany over a decade or more, used a heavy-handed military shtick to convince his followers. On the other hand, Obama used smooth and skillful rhetoric that proved to be far more compelling than Hitler's though having much more evil purposes than did Hitler. As best he could, Obama schooled Biden with quiet hopes that his vice president would carry that torch of this new style of authoritarianism light into domination in our government. Few Americans realize just how close we are to fulfilling that 21st century dream of the left and their darling Barack Obama, they saw their utopia almost shredded by the billionaire from Queens. But Joe stepped back into the picture, bringing new hope in the 2020 election. Fortunately for the nation, and to the angst of the American left, Biden as president has butchered the plan and finds it today in tatters. But that does not mean it's dead. In fact, its revelation to more young Americans has actually emboldened the purveyors of those who are carrying the torch. A complete generation has no concept of true democracy in American government. They've only heard and seen this latest version that embraces myths and disinformation. Biden's handlers are scrambling to unleash the beast of totalitarianism on our continent. Canada's already deferred to Justin Trudeau's weaponization of COVID-19 by using fear to quiet Canadians. Conservative Americans who have awakened to see this powerful move to the left are working diligently to keep the stars and stripes flying above the White House and a three-party government operating with freedom and justice for all as the nation's backbone. Whether that works or not is yet to be discovered. At least more and more Americans are awakening daily to exactly where we are and where we are headed if we do not right the great ship USA. You know what? I think the left enjoys keeping Americans busy, keeping our thoughts and minds diverted, so we don't think through these things. We don't take the time. We're too quick to just trust what we hear and see. And they've been trying it and been doing it very successfully now for 20 years at least. It's time that we all wake up and realize we have the responsibility and we have the ability and all the resources to wake up and find the truth and to embrace the truth in whatever form it comes in and support it totally. Real truth, real news, TNN, the Truth News Network.
0: Grab an ice-cold can of Celsius and stay active and energized all day. Celsius is better-for-you energy, made with premium ingredients, zero sugar
1: and seven essential vitamins, with no high-fructose corn syrup, no aspartame, no preservatives, and no artificial colors or flavors celsius is just the essential
0: energy you need to keep you fueled and active all day celsius essential energy live fit now find celsius at celsius.com or a retailer
2: near you we're outside Pilgrim Furniture and Mattress City where parents are disappearing. Excuse me, are your parents in there?
0: Yeah. They can't decide if they should take no interest for 60 months with no money down or an extra $100 off every $9.99 they spend. It's a tough choice. But they've been in there for six hours. I want
2: dinner. Parents, if you're at Pilgrim, please make a decision. The I'm crazy hungry, so she's got to be too. Slide through to Mickey D's drive-thru to get a Big Mac. Right after I order her quarter pounder with cheese, cause I don't know everything, but I do know when my girl's feeling hangry. Mute. Get it at McDonald's when you buy one of your faves, like the Big Mac, quarter pounder with cheese, ten piece chicken McNuggets, or fillet of fish, and get another for just a dollar. Prices and participation may vary. Valid on item of equal or lesser
0: value. New home can be a real eye opener, but it's the perfect time to look into Homeowner 101 from the Home Depot. Free live streaming workshops taught by expert associates. Now at HomeDepot.com workshops. You'll find indoor and outdoor workshops, even home systems workshops. Plus, you'll get the know-how you need to care for your biggest investment. Master the basics at Homeowner 101. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Register now at HomeDepot.com workshops.
1: You know by now certainly the final day of uh, hearings from the Senate Judiciary Committee with uh, the nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court seat that will be vacant here shortly. It's about over. Yesterday was the last day for those deliberations and question and answers to happen in public. There'll be some behind-the-door meetings between Katanji Brown Jackson and senators, of course, but I think the vote they say they want to try to get it done before April the 1st. But yesterday, I don't know if you watched, but yesterday Keisha Tony Russell, who is a constitutional lawyer at First Liberty Institute, she testified yesterday and she testified in opposition of judge Katanji Brown Jackson's nomination for the Supreme court. And she argued that her support of critical race theory that's Ketanji Brown Jackson's support of critical race theory, means that she would not be able to uphold the Constitution if she believes it is racist. Now, follow this line of reasoning. Every lawyer and judge promises to defend and protect the U.S. Constitution, but she cannot uphold this oath if she believes that the Constitution and the principles of America's foundation are racist and therefore flawed. Neither can a judge remain impartial and administer justice independently if she holds as a fundamental a philosophy that correcting racism requires affording privileged classes less justice than oppressed classes. Think that through. It makes a lot of sense. So this is Keisha Tony Russell speaking. Ultimately, she said, a judge should consider Americans' history as a lesson and a blueprint for why and how we must constantly seek to uphold and protect America's founding promises for these reasons, first Liberty is concerns about Judge Jackson's jurisprudence and first Liberty cannot support her nomination. we told you the other day in case you forgot Jackson is a member of the Board of trustees for a very prestigious school in Washington, D.C., Georgetown Day School, which has embraced critical race theory from top to bottom at the school. Russell said her own experience defied critical race theory, which holds that in America's society, white people are oppressors, and racism is not the result of individual beliefs, but it's embedded in America's legal system and its institutions. This is an African-American woman that's speaking. She said she's a first-generation American and the daughter of Jamaican-born parents. Despite coming to the U.S. and having to build a life for themselves from the ground up, my parents still raised successful children. Russell is a former elementary school teacher, and she said critical race theory demands a radical reordering of society and restructuring of the systems that are supposed to perpetuate racial inequality, of course that's what CRT says, and are incompatible with the judge's oath to uphold the Constitution. CRT supporters claim that America was founded and the Constitution was drafted to promote racism and slavery. Ultimately, we can't expect a critical race theorist to defend and protect the Constitution because CRT asserts that the Constitution is not even worth defending. A view like this contradicts the oath that every judge takes. This is an especially problematic view for a justice who's going to sit on the highest court, which often has the last word on the liberty that the Constitution guarantees. If we adopt the anti-American views of critical race theory, we're going to see the eradication of the principles that made us the freest and most successful republic in history. It was it was mind-boggling to hear a very successful African-American woman that obviously grew up in the same kind of environment as did the nominee, and she just basically laid it out there. She supports critical race theory. She does. And, of course, we're talking about the nominee, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, She supports it, and because one of the fundamentals in critical race theory is the constitutional is not valid, that would mean she cannot be confirmed to the court because her oath of office would be meaningless. She would have to take, as every other judge has, and then sit on the bench after that looking at every case that came before the court refined by her critical race theory which is very slanted against the US constitution wow there's more in this thing we're going to we're not going to spend a lot of time on this but a couple of things that while it's fresh in our minds i want everybody to understand so after her nomination Remember this? She was unable in a hearing to define the word woman. And she claimed she is not a biologist. Well, listen to this. USA Today, they just went over the top. In an essay that was published yesterday titled, Marsha Blackburn Asked Katanji Brown Jackson to Define Woman, science says there's no simple answer. So a USA Day reporter that wrote this story claimed that even experts in science don't have a sufficient way to clearly define what a woman is. Follow me on this. I mean, this is, this is absolutely mind-boggling. This writer, remember again, this is not a doctor. This is a reporter, said, quote, scientists, gender law scholars, and philosophers of biology I gotta be honest with you, I didn't know there was a type of philosopher, that there was one of biology, but nevertheless, apparently there is. She said Jackson's response was commendable, though perhaps misleading. It's useful, they say, that Jackson suggested science could help answer Blackburn's question. But they noted that a competent biologist would not be able to offer a definitive answer either. Scientists agree there is no sufficient way to clearly define what makes someone a woman, and with billions of women on the planet, there is much variation. Now, put this in the context of where it's reported and who reported it. It's in USA Today, one of the farthest left news entities in the nation. They own newspapers all over America. And this is a reporter that says this. And listen to this quote. And what we covered in our story to start the show today, misinformation, disinformation, fits perfectly in this scenario. Here's a quote from the reporter. Scientists agree there is no sufficient way to clearly define what makes someone a woman and with billions of women on the planet there is much variation now please understand this when i when i read this i said come on man if you're going to quote scientists and say something like scientists agree and you're a credible reporter working for a credible news outlet what do you have to include in a statement that you make as factual. Give us some specific information, like the names of the scientists and examples, quotes of what these scientists agree on, that there is no sufficient way to clearly define what makes someone a woman. Do you think if you're a biologist in America and a reporter comes up and claims there's no way to tell a woman from a man, or no way to tell somebody's a woman? Don't you think somebody would stand up and raise their hand saying, ooh, 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 call on me, call on me? I've got the answer. I'm a biologist, I can tell you. This is how they function. It's all about somebody said. It's always about anonymous sources or sources agree. And when you hear that at the beginning of a sentence in a story, what that actually means is another left-wing outlet put this information out, and when you put it out, you can now say others agree. USA Today did this. We're talking about somebody that's going to hold the spot on the highest court in the world, the United States Supreme Court. And it begins... All the way back in the campaign, Joe Biden did exactly what he campaigned and told voters he was going to do. If a spot comes up on the Supreme Court and he's in office, he's going to fill it with an African-American woman. You can't run away from this stuff, folks. It's right out there. Now, Alan Dertiewicz, he's a longtime attorney, Harvard legal scholar, He's argued many cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Yesterday, late yesterday, he said he's concerned about the nominee, her record on free speech. He said she should have been better prepared for answering the senator's questions on things like abortion and gender. Dershowitz said that he interacted with Jackson just one time when she led protest against offensive flags back in 1991 as part of Harvard's Black Students Association. One student, whose Virginia ancestors were against slavery, but they were part of the Confederacy, displayed a Confederate flag outside of her dorm. In response, another woman hung a Nazi flag to show how offensive the Confederate flag was. Dershowitz said the Black Students Association, of which Judge Jackson was then a member, tried to get both flags taken down. Dershowitz disagreed with the student who displayed the flag, but he still defended her and ultimately won the case. Now, does that mean Dershowitz is a racist? Just because he supported that. Dershowitz said Congress should have asked Jackson about her views on the incident and on free speech. I hope that she's changed her views on that in the last 31 years and understands that some of the greatest threats to our freedom of speech come from claims of equality on the other side or inequality on the other side. I hope she'll understand that you can't have equality without having complete freedom of speech in the First Amendment. And remember, she struggled on questions about abortion and what defines a woman. She wasn't as well as prepared, for example, as the previous nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, who knew her case is cold. Senator Marsha Blackburn asked Jackson, can you provide a definition of the word woman? No, I can't, she responded. I can't in this context. I'm not a biologist. So then Senator John Cornyn of Texas, a Republican, asked Jansen about fetal viability. And she gave a similar answer to her response to Blackburn. Senator, I'm not a biologist, she said. I haven't studied this. I don't know. Put it in the context of what she's asking everybody to do. Put me on the court, the U.S. Supreme Court, where they're dealing with an abortion deal right now. It's going to come up in every term, and she's going to have to make decisions and weigh in on whether or not things are or not regarding abortion. She's not looking for a position in which she can go up there and say, I'm sorry, I don't know. (laughs) She's going to be making life and death decisions, literally, life and death decisions. She's got to know. She's got to know what her opinion is, and she's got to express it, because that's what happens at the U.S. Supreme Court. So this whole thing of why she was nominated and is she qualified or is she not qualified And, of course, everybody understands, and a huge majority polled in America about how you pick a Supreme Court candidate to be nominated. You should look across the nation and find the person, the very best person, the most qualified person to make decisions at that level on laws that come before the court. A huge majority of Americans don't agree with making that choice based on any kind of political perspective or skin color or ethnicity or background. It should only be based on the most qualified person. If you look at that perspective, by naming Kajaja Brown Jackson as his nominee, President Biden he completely overlooked about 97% of the people in this nation in law with law experience and judgeship experience that could possibly be considered because they were qualified. We'll never know if there was another more qualified person out there unless, of course, Ms. Jackson is not confirmed and he has to name somebody else. But all this falls in the bucket of pretty much everything in this administration is upside down. It's backwards. Very little ties together, and very little has anything to do with the rule of law. So in these hearings, there's been a bunch of grandstanding, as there always are. The Senate Judiciary Committee is, if not the most, one of the most prestigious committee spots to get to grab when you become a senator. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, if you remember back in the last confirmation hearing, he made some famous faux pas. And one was about Spartacus. You remember in that committee hearing, he got very emotional and said, This is my Spartacus moment. Well, yesterday, folks, he went off the reservation. And I'm not referring to a southern reservation where there were slaves. I'm referring to the reservation of uh, sticking to the facts. And once again, in the confirmation hearing, the final day for Katanji Brown-Jackson, he had Cory Booker, another Spartacus moment.
2: This is about the closest I'll probably ever have in my life to an I am Spartacus moment. and I will continue to do so because I believe the public has the right to know As Langston Hughes wrote, oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet, but yet must be the land where everyone is free. Oh, yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me, but I swear this oath, America will be. That is the story of how you got to this desk, you and I and everyone here, generations of folk who came here and said, America, I'm Irish, you may say, no, Irish or dogs need to apply, but I'm going to show this country that I can be free here. I can make this country love me as much as I love it. Chinese Americans first forced into near slave labor, building our railroads, connecting our country, saw the ugliest of America. But they were going to build their home here and say, America, you may not love me yet, but I'm going to make this nation live up to its promise and hope. LGBTQ Americans from Stonewall women to Seneca. Hidden figures who didn't even get their play until some Hollywood movie finally talked about them. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! Let me put
1: that in context, folks. We heard similar things from the nominee herself. We heard it from Cory Booker. The fundamental that they all present is that the United States of America is not fair. It is racist, not people that choose to be racist, but the whole country is racist. Therefore, waving that paintbrush from way up in the sky, you're painting everybody that was born here as a racist, fundamentally, from the very beginning. There's no anywhere in science there is any evidence that anything like that could even be true. What it represents is the thinking that goodness and success and righteousness in the United States of America, there's only so much to go around. It's called a zero-sum game. That means, and I'll give you an example, um, you've got a big bowl, and you fill the bowl to the brim of goodness and fairness and righteousness and truth. And you can't put but just so much in it. So if you live there and you want some of that, you can't go get it somewhere else. There's only so much to go around. You have to go take it from someone. They have the goodness, the righteousness, the truth, and you got to go steal it from them. It doesn't work that way. That's not the truth. One of the greatest things about living in this nation is not about politics, it's not about being wealthy, it's not about being famous, it's being free and looking at the person standing next to you when you're at a checkout lane at Kroger and knowing that that person started their life just like you started your life and you both had the same things, freedom freedom to pursue what it is that you want to pursue or not to pursue it, to be a truthful person or to not be a truthful person, to work hard to accumulate or not to work hard to accumulate, to have a family or not have a family. You know where I'm going with this? Everybody has the same rights to everything. They're not given to us by our government. They're endowed to every American by our creator. And therefore, no other person can take it away. If we want to give it up, that's up to us, but not anybody else. In that scenario, life works. In the scenario that Cory Booker just talked about, the fundamental qualification for this nominee is not The fact that she has been a successful lawyer, uh, a defender, indigent defender, or that she's been a good judge, it's because of one thing, well, really two things. She's African-American and she's a woman, but yet she can't define what what a woman is because she's not a biologist. If you subscribe to any of this, folks, if you, if you are a purveyor of the fundamental fact that if your skin color is not black, you're automatically a racist and therefore you're not a good person. They, just because their skin may be black, means they're a good person and you're not. If you subscribe to that, you're lost as a goose. You're going to spend your life being angry at everybody that's not like you instead of just putting your shoulder to the grindstone and grinding the the grindstone just like everybody else does if they want to achieve the same goals that you do. If you don't want to, that's fine. But don't demand that somebody gives you something that you haven't worked to earn and deserve but just because of skin color, just because of ethnicity, just because of sexual preference, that all does not work in the real world. And we're doing it now. We're trying. Our nation, our government, they're trying to make everything fair. But it's impossible to do, folks. There always has to be an arbiter that has the sole authority of designation. And if you're not in their circle, if they don't like you, it doesn't matter what you think. If you don't have the power that they have, you can't be what you want to be. Somebody has to endow you with that ultimately, ultimate right to determine everything about everybody. We're living in that world right now. And this nominee and all the stuff that she said and that she didn't say in her confirmation hearings, is a perfect example. And then you have those around her. I mean, the mainstream media went absolutely nuts for three days about the Republicans even asking her these serious, probing, legal questions to get answers in order for them to be justified to vote for her confirmation. They went crazy. But that's the way it works, folks. That's the way the process works. And once again, I'll say this. If the process in government doesn't work, fix it. Change it. The United States Constitution can do just that. And by the way, I don't know if you realized it, but they have controlling voting block in the House of Representatives and in the Senate and in the White House. So why haven't they fixed it? if they're so dead set against on everybody from here going forward that gets appointed to any position in any administration has got to be appointed based on race, 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 not on qualifications.
0: Hi, this is Jack, founder of Jack in the Box. Is the caller there? Mr. Box, Douglas Gopperts from Burger Week magazine. Oh, hey, Doug. Doug's a respected fast food critic. I recently dined on your sourdough Jack combo. And? Perfection. The cheese, the jumbo patty, the golden sourdough bread, the French fries. Bravo. Well, thank you. However, I found the dessert a bit dry. It doesn't come with dessert. The candy. The white, round candy with the happy face. Was it wearing a scarf? Yes, I believe it was. Rosy cheeks? Fuzzy earmuffs? Yes, that's it. Douglas, you ate a holiday ball. (gasps) We're giving one away free to customers who buy a Sourdough Jack combo. But they're not for dessert. They're for antennas. Or a pencil. Right. Well, that's going to improve your score dramatically.
2: Excellent. Few things bring as much joy as the delicious taste of Coca-Cola, like your first time camping or falling in love on a blind date. And now, our new Coke bottles are sip-sized and made from 100% recycled materials, so every bottle can live on to create more memories. That's endlessly refreshing. Coca-Cola, bottles are made from 100% recycled materials excluding cap and label. Enjoy the great taste of Coca-Cola in a new sip-sized bottle that's made of 100% recycled materials.
1: Genuine Ford Parts and Service presents A Word from Your Wallet.
2: Dow oh, ah, are we at the gas station? Oh. Yeah, I know. I'm feeling these gas prices too. <laughs> I'm
3: the wallet down here. Head to a Ford dealership. Why? Proper vehicle maintenance. A new air filter can save nineteen cents a gallon. Correct tire inflation up to six cents a gallon. Wow, that sure adds up. <laughs> Fat wallets are very in right now.
0: Right now, motorcraft
1: air filter replacement is just nineteen ninety-five or less. Replacing a dirty air filter can increase fuel economy by as much as ten percent. Well
3: done. That was easy. Maybe you should listen to your wallet more often.
0: Well, you you're typically pretty quiet. Well, I didn't want to be a pain in the. Uh, uh,
2: uh, uh. Hurry in for the best deals we've had in years money saving rebates on brakes, batteries, tires, and more. See your participating Ford dealer today.
0: When a governor can tell a president, no rally in my state, it's time for some definitive truth. Here with the goods, again, Dan Newman.
1: Well, in the middle of the process of confirming a United States Supreme Court justice, the president. He went to Europe. He went to Brussels. Today, he's in Poland. So you got to understand what he was over there for. He went over there for a NATO meeting, and then he went over there for an European Union meeting, met with a lot of heavyweights, a lot of people, and they're over there getting their arms around primarily, what are we going to do about Ukraine and Russia and what's happening over there. And uh, it is a critical thing to discuss. There are so many moving parts and so many different people that are involved in all this. One of them that it's really been a surprise to me that has been involved is the president of Turkey, Erdogan. And Erdogan claimed on Thursday that Vladimir Putin and Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky are nearing consensus on key issues to resolve the Russia-Ukraine war. Turkey has been hosting diplomatic talks between those two nations. Erdogan said, "...we'll continue our talks with both Mr. Putin and Mr. Zelensky from now on as well." He said, "...according to his presidential office, all our efforts aim to create an atmosphere of peace by bringing together the two leaders." As is known, Erdogan said, there's almost a consensus regarding such issues as NATO, disarmament, collective security, and using Russia as official language in the technical infrastructure works during the ongoing process in Belarus. However, there is the issues of Crimea and Donbass, which is impossible for Ukraine to consent to. Erdogan said, I think Mr. Zelensky has displayed wise leadership with an understanding to take the issue to referendum by saying that is a decision that must be made by the entire Ukrainian people. So that's interesting. Um, If you don't know anything about Erdogan, you ought to check it out. He is a ruthless, ruthless man, a ruthless leader. He's got a very speckled past. Um, He is Islamic. And uh, he basically said, right about the time he took control of the presidency in Turkey, that he is the leader of Islam. That's right. Turkey's leader, Erdogan, claims that he is the leader of Islam. Why he got into the middle of this Ukraine-Russia thing, I don't know. Although, Turkey, and many don't even know this, Turkey is a member of NATO, therefore, will be impacted by whatever happens in Ukraine. Now, they did strike a deal, they being the European Union and the United States. Joe got a deal put together. They've struck a deal to reduce Europe's dependence on Russian fossil fuels including a commitment for the U.S. to provide an additional 15 billion cubic meters of LNG, that's liquefied national gas, to the EU markets this year alone. Biden and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announced the new initiative at a press conference in Brussels yesterday. We're coming together to reduce Europe's dependence on Russian energy, the president said. Well, the context for the move is this invasion in Ukraine and it's really, really screwed up energy in Europe and all around the world because of all of the sanctions now on Russia and these European countries, they rely heavily on Russia to give them gas, natural gas and of course oil and everything that oil has turned into. So at this press conference, Biden and von der Leyen announced the formation of a joint task force on energy security, which will work on ways to reduce Europe's dependence on Russian fossil fuels, while at the same time reducing the European Union's overall gas demand going forward. And they're going to do it by accelerating market deployment of clean energy technologies. The 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 only reason I'm bringing this up, Joe pontificated. On all of the things that we are going to do regarding getting Europe fossil fuel free, just like he's telling America that he's doing here. Now, you remember our uh, conversation yesterday or the day before about a new world order, which Joe, in a speech, actually mentioned himself that it's on its way, we're going to have one, one government. And we need to be the leader, he said. We need to be in front of this one world order thing. And it kind of makes sense because here he is talking with the leader of the European Union, represents all the countries that make up the European Union, and he's talking about him. Not just the United States, but Joe Biden being the leader to help Europe get off of every kind of energy consumption that is not renewable. In other words, windmills, solar energy, battery-powered everything. The United States is always the leader of pretty much everything that happens around the world. But here is the guy that is supposed to be the leader of the greatest country on the world, and he is arbitrarily saying, We need to get away from fossil fuel, while at the same time, he opened up the door to provide more fossil fuel to all of Europe. You just can't make these things up, folks. You just can't do it. So in this battle of what the United States is and is not going to do to intervene in any way in the Ukraine-Russia thing, Joe Biden once again, He gets up in front of people and he sticks his foot in his mouth over and over and over again. This time, it was two reporters asking questions. You remember Biden talked about the very controversial timing of putting sanctions on Russia. You remember that? Many, in fact, I think every military leader in in our military, with the exception of maybe our Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, they said, sanction the snot out of Russia to prevent them from going into an invasion in Ukraine. And Joe Biden, oh, no, 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 no. We can't do that. If we're going to do sanctions, we will wait till after sanctions. He said, sanctions, sanctions are not deterrence. You remember he said that? And then he waffled. He changed it again and he said, We'll do sanctions when it's time to deter. Yesterday, answering questions over in Europe, he got into the deterrence story again. He said, dramatically, I never said sanctions would deter Russia. Never said that. Well, listen to the president. And then listen to his national security adviser Jake Sullivan, and then Vice President Harris, and then Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and then the mind uniter in the White House, Jen Psaki, talking about sanctions and deterrence.
0: No one expected the sanctions to prevent anything from happening. It has to. Show, this is going to take time.
2: The president believes that sanctions are intended to deter and in order for them to work to deter, they have to be set up in a way where if Putin moves, then the costs are imposed.
1: That was National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. And then there's Vice President Kamala Harris.
0: But if you believe Putin has made up his mind, what
2: leverage do you really have? Why not put those sanctions in place now?
0: The
3: purpose of the sanctions has always been and continues to be deterrence the deterrence effect of these sanctions is still a meaningful one especially because remember also we still sincerely hope that there is a diplomatic path out of this
1: moment and then secretary of state blinken the purpose of the sanctions in the first instance is to try to deter russia from going to war as soon as you trigger them that deterrent is gone and until um uh, the last minute uh, as long as we can try to bring uh, a deterrent effect to this uh, we're going to try to do that Now, um, let's go back and hear the president one more time.
0: No one expected the sanctions to prevent anything from happening. It has to show this going to take time.
1: And of course, the person that always comes forward with the most wisdom, the most knowledge about pretty much anything is Jen Psaki, White House press secretary.
2: Our hope is that uh, Putin will decide to de-escalate, that he will feel uh, the threat of the uh, sanctions, what the impact will be on the Russian economy, uh, on the Russian people, on the people who surround him. Uh, They are meant to have a deterrent impact, that he will feel the weight of being a pariah in the global community. The way we look at this, broadly speaking, and Dilip touched on this a little bit, is that we do see them as having a deterrent impact, right? It doesn't mean they're 100% foolproof.
1: So every one of those leaders in the Biden administration, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Vice President Kamala Harris, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, they all say, yeah, from the beginning we thought it would deter. And Joe Biden said he thought it would deter, but now he's out there saying, we never said sanctions would deter him. In fact, you remember when he announced them, big deal, he announced the first round of them. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And he was asked, well, how, how long are we going to know? Is it going to take to know that the sanctions are working? And Biden said, well, nobody, you know, those kind of things, those, they don't work immediately. It takes some time. So what we'll do is we'll wait 30 days. And surely by that time, he'll be licking his wounds in Russia and he'll be giving up. We know that's a case. Well, we're a month and a day into the Ukraine thing, the sanctions thing, the first round, and even a second round, and even a third round. I guess you haven't heard, but I guess I haven't heard either that the the war must be over, because Joe Biden said it was going to do 30 days, and Vladimir Putin would come crawling. It's been 30 days plus he hadn't come crawling. It's far from over. Yes, there are indications that we may be well down the road to getting this resolved and we always we always want to get things resolved. So Biden he got off off script yesterday and the day before. I mean, he just he just does every time he gets there and the teleprompter's not working. He stood on a world stage yesterday And in addition to sharing the things we've already told you about, he repeated the false claim that his predecessor, Donald Trump, claimed that neo-Nazis are very good people. And, of course, he's talking about Charlottesville. You remember that? started way back then. That, of course, is par for the 79-year-old president. He flubbed the actual words that he used. Of course, he didn't dare mention Trump's name in repeating a claim that even the heavily biased fact-checkers have reluctantly debunked. This was during a press conference at NATO headquarters. One reporter asked without mentioning Trump's name a loaded question about, quote, "...widespread concerns in Europe that a figure like your predecessor, maybe even your predecessor himself, might get elected president again." to suggest that this figure may undermine the NATO alliance. The reporter said, so are there any steps, anything you're trying to do, and NATO is trying to do here these days, to prevent what you're trying to do becoming undone two years from now? Biden's response? Oh, he jumped right in there. No! I. That's not how I think of this. I've been dealing with foreign policy for longer than anybody that's involved in this process right now. I have no concerns about the impact. I made a commitment when I ran this time. I wasn't going to run again. And I mean that sincerely. I had no intention of running for president again. And until I saw those folks coming out of the fields in Virginia carrying torches and carrying Nazi banners and literally singing the same vile rhyme that they used in Germany in the early 20s or 30s, I should say. And then when the gentleman you mentioned was asked what he thought, and a young woman was killed, a protester, and he asked, was asked what he thought. He said, there are very good people on both sides. And that's when I decided I wasn't going to be quiet any longer, he added. So he's talking about what happened August of 2017 in Charlottesville, Virginia. It was a Unite the Right rally in response to the city's decision to remove a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. In talking to reporters, Trump said, quote, You had some very bad people in that group, but you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Before adding, you had people, and I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists, because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists, okay? And the press has treated them absolutely unfairly. Now listen to what I'm saying here. I guarantee you, somebody that's listening to this show right now, when I just gave you a quote of the full verbiage from the president back in 2017, where he made it very clear in the second sentence, I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis, and the white nationalists, there are some of you that believe Donald Trump said white nationalists were good people. He was referring to those who opposed the whitewashing of American history by applying today's woke standards to events of the past. And, of course, those are illustrated across the nation as we've seen statues and other works of art just pulled down. In a recent interview with the Washington Examiner, Trump said he got a bad rap when it comes to dealing with Vladimir Putin and disputed the claim that he undermined NATO by asking member nations to pay their fair share. I got billions of dollars for NATO, he said. Now all that money is going against Russia. So I did that. I closed the pipeline. You know, the pipeline was closed and Biden opened it. That's the one between Russia and Germany. Plus, I did the biggest sanctions anybody's ever done on Russia. As much and as often as I see and hear that, it's mind-boggling to me that this kind of crud is allowed by mainstream media to just keep rolling and rolling, and people automatically believe it, and they're believing it, they're believing lies. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about those sanctions. Those very sanctions that Joe Biden put out there that, oh, they're crippling all these filthy rich people and this government of Russia. That's not happening. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Details next.
0: Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row.
1: Leave a message at the...
0: I'm a Verizon engineer, and today we're turning on 5G across the country, including right here in New York City, with the coverage of 5G nationwide and in more and more cities, the unprecedented performance of ultra-wideband. It will change your phone and how businesses do everything. I'm proud because we didn't build it the easy way. We built it right. This is the 5G America's been waiting for, only from Verizon. 5G ultra-wideband available only in parts of select cities. 5G nationwide available in 1,800 plus cities. Square Packages, the packaging specialists are proud to present a box on both your houses. The untold story of the invention of the box and the family rivalry that nearly destroyed it. It's a tale about opening your heart, finding acceptance, and inventing the most efficient means of shipping and packaging that mankind has ever known. Proving that to find what's in your soul, you have to look outside the box and into another box, which is a house. Your home. And that truly is the greatest box of all. Tune in every Wednesday at 8 for this once in a week time television event A Box on Both Your Houses, presented by Square Packages, the packaging specialists. You're fighting back the tsunami of ignorance with Dan Newman, TNN, the Truth News Network.
1: Oh, how applicable! You're pushing back against the tsunami of ignorance. And in that context, we hear that the European Union is struggling, struggling to enforce those sweeping sanctions it has levied against Russian oligarchs due to legal constraints and enforcement issues. In other words, you just can't go grab a half a billion dollar yacht from some Russian oligarch. Those sanctions have targeted a bunch of the country's super-rich and those with close ties to Putin, including some politicians, businessmen, military staff, and more. Yet while these individuals should see their bank accounts and assets frozen under these sanctions, so far just a little portion of their funds have been impacted. Now Reuters is reporting this today. Key issues, legal constraints, difficult in tracking down the oligarch's wealth, among other things. Even when sanctions are in place, most EU countries are only able to go as far as freezing assets, meaning that while the assets cannot be sold, can't be transferred or seized by the state, they can still be used by their owners. Now what the heck what good is it then? This effectively means that a Russian national who's been sanctioned by the European Union, could keep on living in a home even after he or she has had it frozen by authorities. The European Commission released this statement, quote, "...in most member states, this is not possible, and a criminal conviction is necessary to confiscate assets." Poland is among a number of countries that have pushed hard for heavy sanctions on Russia. However, government spokesperson Petrie Muller told Reuters that the country would need to change its constitution to allow it to seize assets. France has frozen about 850 million euros that belong to individuals that have been blacklisted, blacklisted, and that includes properties and yachts. This is according to the finance ministry. But still, owners are able to use these physical assets. Elsewhere, Italian lawyers told Reuters that separate legal proceedings would be needed for the country to be able to seize frozen assets. Belgium, though, appears to have had more success than anybody else. They have frozen roughly 2.7 billion euros in bank accounts and 7.3 billion euros in transactions. France's finance ministry said it's not identified any property belonging directly or indirectly to a blacklisted person. Now, tracking down those assets, that's another biggie. Many of those Russians have been sanctioned by the West, such as Alisher Uzumanov, have shifted assets to offshore companies and blind accounts. A spokesperson for one Russian business magnate who has been sanctioned by the European Union, the UK, the United States, and Switzerland, said he no longer owns many of his former properties, meaning he could potentially avoid these penalties from these sanctions. His spokesperson said that the majority of the billionaire's UK properties, as well as his yacht, had been long ago transferred into irrevocable trust. From that point on, he didn't own them, nor was he able to manage them or deal with their sale, but could only use them on a rental basis. The oligarch withdrew from the beneficiaries of the trust, donating his beneficial rights to his family. In other words, it's kind of like happens. Filthy rich people around the globe, they find ways to circumvent the law's all kinds of laws, but especially the financial laws. Now, what is the end of all of this that we're talking about? It's real simple, folks. The sanctions, the sanctions on all these oligarchs in Russia. It sounds really cool, and it sounds like it should be effective, but it ain't working. (laughs) It ain't working. Joe Biden said 30 days, oh, they'll come crawling. 30 days they're spending the weekend on their luxury yachts, spending millions of dollars that we were told were sanctioned. All those assets, we're going to freeze them. What else is happening that's important? There's so much. It's just crazy, folks. It's crazy. We've got food shortages looming in our future. Can you believe this? We do. Even President Biden says that we in the United States and Canada, we've got to up food production in order to offset shortages in Europe that are caused by the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine. Now we have to, we have to up food production for Ukraine and Russia. Folks, Ukraine and Russia combined, they are the biggest holders of wheat in the world. And if you don't know this, wheat's pretty much a fundamental of everything you eat, everything you cook anyway. So each of those two nations are among the top producers of agriculture commodities in the world, across the world, specializing in wheat and maize and rapeseeds, sunflower seeds and sunflower oil. However, maybe the most important thing is they supply nearly 30% of corn in the global market and fertilizers, fertilizers. This is probably the biggest thing. It's about to come time to start planning, spring planning. And what typically happens, farmers have to have fertilizer in place to get the good results when they plant these crops. Without fertilizer, The crops will only produce, it is estimated, about 50% of their normal levels. That means food shortages. So as we impose sanctions meant to isolate the Russian economy and the military conflict stifles movement out of shipping ports in the Black Sea, cereal prices are rising, and the UN is warning of the potential for food insecurity in some countries. It's going to be real, Biden said this yesterday. The price of the sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia, it's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries in our country as well. He told reporters there are discussions among the G7 leaders on how the wheat production powerhouses of the U.S. and Canada might increase and disseminate more rapidly to offset any reduction in food from Russia and Ukraine. He also mentioned this may require ending trade restrictions, imposing limits on growing and exporting food. So we're in the process, he said, of working out with our European friends what it would be, what it would take to help alleviate the concerns relative to food shortages. Russia's the number one world exporter of wheat. Second, us, the United States. Third, Canada. The commodity is up more than 26% on the month, was trading at more than $10 a bushel yesterday. Top to bottom, when you go to war, when you get involved in a war, even if you're not involved in direct conflict, we're not yet. But we're funding most of the funding that goes to Ukraine. When you get that close, folks, you open up Pandora's box. You're taking the resources that you have as an, a nation. And we've given several billion dollars to Ukraine. Several billion dollars. Look around the nation. Don't even look around the nation. Look at, look at your house. Look at your bank accounts. Look at your assets. And look what's going on with their values. Look at your life, what is happening regarding what you must spend just to live at the same level that you've been living at. It's costing you far more top to bottom. And now this is coming up. Marianne and I, my wife, we had an actual conversation yesterday determining what things we need to go regarding food items now that we can buy now and we'll still be able to use them down the road when this inevitable shortage hits Northwest Louisiana. Folks, we've never had to have that kind of conversation ever before in my lifetime. So where's the leadership over here? What is the president doing to make sure that our transmission problems, you know, are getting stuff here from foreign countries and getting it transmitted across our nation, the problems that we've had and we've been dealing with for almost a year, nobody's talking about that now, and the same problems are at our ports in Los Angeles, in Houston, in New Orleans, Jacksonville, all the way around, supply chain is broken, it's still broken, and now he's standing on a stage in Europe and he says, hey, hey, hey. We're gonna step in and fix your problem. Other leaders in the United States, they're taking they're taking his opinion. They're getting involved in similar ways in their own states and and cities. Gasoline no place else in the United States is the cost of gasoline like it is top to bottom in California. California's taxes, on, I, don't, I don't have that number in front of me. They're not the highest in the nation. i always thought they were, but they're in the top three. They're taxing the snot out of gas. What's an option that you can do out there? Well, in politics, the best option for anything is to throw money at it. Even if it doesn't resolve the problem, it'll make everybody that's living in the problem make them feel a little better about that so what does gavin newsom do listen to what he's doing
2: well governor gavin newsom releasing some details on his plan for a gas rebate while the prices here in our state are so high the governor wants to use some nine billion dollars of the state surplus to provide a tax rebate california taxpayers will get 400 dollars for each registered vehicle up to two vehicles the governor's office released a video of newsom making the announcement That direct relief will address
0: the issue that we all are struggling to address and that's the issue of gas prices, not only here in our state, but of course all
3: across this country.
2: the governor went on to say that he also wants to provide $750 million so transit agencies can provide up to three months of free public transit for people who don't have a car. There's up to $600 million for pausing a part of the sales tax rate on diesel for one year and another $523 million to pause the inflationary adjustment to gas and diesel excise tax rates. All of this needs to still be approved by lawmakers who will pass a state budget in June. Gavin Newsom, he found out. Back during
1: the pandemic, all you got to do is have your people be in dire circumstances and you can become the saviors of their whole lives by throwing money out there. Money fixes everything, takes care of everything. Even though you may have policies and laws and regulations that directly impact everything you do, those things don't matter. We can keep them in place. We've got a budget surplus in California. This is the most mind boggling thing of this story that I could possibly think could ever happen. California has billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of debt, but yet Gavin Newsom, when he has a a one-year budget surplus, in other words, they got some money in the bank after they paid all the bills, even though they've got all this other stuff from years ago behind them that they've got to figure out at some point to pay it. Instead of taking some of the money from that budget surplus and paying down some of the debt that you've incurred through years, we're just going to spend it. What better way to spend it than to buy the support of voters in California who almost kicked you out of office just a couple of months ago in a recall election, and of course you're going to want to run for president again, for uh, excuse me, governor again. So you take that budget surplus and you just send them a gas check. Wow, a few hundred dollars, that's not going to fix anything. It's a Band-Aid if it's anything at all. So while we're in the middle of talking about problems, we have one in our administration. Well, we have many there, but our vice president has some problems. You may have heard that she can't keep staffers. She just can't keep them. 10, I think it's 10 or 11, have left her administration during this uh, vice presidency she's in the middle of, and we're just a little over a year into it, and she's lost 10 people. Speaks a lot about what's going on there. But she got a new press secretary. Hey, hey, hey. Those people bring all kind of communication skills. But apparently there's a little problem with Vice President Kamala Harris's new press secretary.
3: Welcome back. Time for the Hot Topic Buzz. Something to hide. Vice President Harris's new press secretary, Kristen Allen, appearing to have deleted more than 10,000 tweets before taking her new gig within the halls of power. It's unclear what exactly was scrubbed, but some tweets are still up from Allen's time on Kamala's 2020 campaign team. Even one praising criticism of Joe Biden during the debate. Oh, I guess there's a lot to take down james freeman because these two were not exactly friends when they were competing during the campaign season I'm talking about kamala and joe
2: yeah i think it's been a question all along why why did he choose her uh she uh trashed him in the debates uh um the uh, uh talking about his uh, work with uh, segregationist senators uh, it was um it was a surprising choice and and maybe still is looking back and you know, I think we all have things we wish we hadn't said, I, you know, 10,000 of them seems like a lot. But uh, <laughs> but I think in some way this is kind of normal is sort of you have a primary fight and you say a lot of things and your staff says a lot of things about the person who ends up being the nominee that uh, you then uh, sort of ignore or take back or stop saying.
3: Mm-hmm. Yep. What do you think, Let- Mo?
2: Look, to James's point, it's normal course of business in politics, you're gonna make fun of your opponents, you're gonna criticize them until you become one of their team members. But when you delete all the tweets, like how many people have to learn the hard way? There's always a digital record. You're going to get more scrutiny for trying to hide who you are, um, just because you remove it from from the internet doesn't mean it's gone for, from it forever. I mean, I would imagine nope. in the days uh, in the days ahead. I mean, these are lessons I try and teach my teenagers. If you tweet it, it exists forever. If you snap it, send it, it's somewhere. You better think twice yep. and and be ready to be accountable. It's okay to have an opinion. But defend it and be accountable for it instead of hiding it. You know,
1: it just seems to me like today, in this administration, there are so many little things that are constantly going on that the media are picking up on. I don't know if it's because they protected Barack Obama and Joe Biden when they were in office for eight years. I mean, folks, during the four years of Donald Trump, there was horror story after-horror story every day in the news regarding the Trump administration. Very little of it was ever true other than that he was under attack, all kinds of allegations, even before he took office. In this administration, it just seems like we have these monstrous issues. And yeah, they're talked about, but there are far more of these little bitty things that are bubbling under the surface that you know something's there, but you can't quite figure it out. You know what's been missing? We haven't heard much from the squad led by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat representatives from New York. We haven't heard much. Well, she busted that yesterday. She came out and she got uh she got pretty pretty angry. And she was talking about our president. She wasn't talking about anything he's doing, but she's concerned about his support in the upcoming midterm elections. Not him, but for the de- other Democrat candidates. AOC, right after this. You're fighting back the tidal wave of deceit, lies, spin, and ignorance. With
0: TNN, the Truth News Network. Long live the courageous. Hey, God bless and keep you all the tenacious the ones who push forward and give back long live the greater good the helping hand those who fall and get back up and long live the truck with the strength come, the will to outwork, and the commitment to outlast them all. Ram, proven to last. Hey, Thirst, can I try out a few Coke Summer sound effects on you? Yes! Cool. You okay with this? Yes! And this? And what about this? Ah, yes. Ha! Gotcha there, Thirst. That wasn't sound effects. That was a Coke. I'm no longer thirsty. You're so out of here. Coca-Cola Open Happiness.
1: We're headed into a weekend. Our last weekend in March. Can you believe we're looking at April? I mean, this year is just flying by. Lots of good things going on. Always bad things going on as well, but we're uh, finding our way to dig through all of this stuff and stay on the top of everything. In the middle of this, U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's going after Uncle Joe. She said that his falling poll numbers, particularly among younger people, is a real cause for concern as these midterm elections are getting closer and closer. She represents Queens and the Bronx in Congress, and she believes the president is risking the complete collapse of his support among fellow progressives and young would-be Democratic voters. But she believes that it's not yet lost and that the second half of Biden's first term could be saved if the president pushes some of his promised legislation using executive action, not the legislative action that she's a part of. We need to acknowledge that this isn't just about middle-of-the-road, increasingly narrow band of independent voters, she said. But this is really about the collapse of support among young people, among Democratic base, feeling like they worked overtime to get this president elected. They aren't necessarily being seen. AOC said she's afraid that low polling numbers will see the Democrats hit during November's congressional elections, but she believes Biden could yet turn things around with some obvious concessions. Listen to this. She's saying hey, it's not looking good for Joe Biden. It's really not. And it looks like there's a chance that we're going to lose control of the House of Representatives and possibly of the Senate. And if that happens, coming around for the 2024 presidential election, young Democrats aren't going to want to support Joe Biden. So what's her answer? What's her answer? Listen to this. While on the campaign trail, Biden promised to chop off $10,000 from every college student's debt, it's a promise that remains unfulfilled. AOC said that she believes Biden was still mulling what to do, but cautions the time for the administration is running out. She's actually saying That if Biden would forget about going to Congress, you know, Congress, all spending bills have to begin in her house, the House of Representatives. She mentioned, she just floated this out there. While on the campaign trail, Biden promised to chop off $10,000 from every college student's debt. It's a promise that remains unfulfilled she said what he needs to do is use his executive authority and chop off the debt, basically buy votes in the midterm. If he would just do another executive order and delete $10,000 from every college student's debt, that probably all these young people would vote for him. Follow the money, folks. It's all about money. And speaking of that, you know, we've been following what happened in the 2020 election. And I'll just repeat this. No, it is not a big lie. Hard evidence from multiple states now are coming in that there was massive voter, I'm not going to say fraud, but voter irregularities. And the courts have even come out in large and have confirmed those things. A nonprofit connected to Mark Zuckerberg funded groups worked with Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson to influence state elections ahead of 2020. The changes included getting the state to change how it used absentee ballots within an act of the state legislature. Listen to this this is documented stuff. This is not, oh, conspiracy. Documents exclusively obtained through an open records request show National Voted Home Institute CEO Amber McReynolds working with Benson, Benson, that's the Secretary of State, to change Michigan elections policy. That not-per-profit shares leadership ties with the Center for Tech and Civic Life, which is a group that shuttled money from Zuckerberg to government election agencies in Michigan, ahead of the 2020 election. In several cases, Zuckerberg's organization worked together with this other one to influence the election. Documents also show the private organization funded by Facebook tycoon Zuckerberg exists only to push states to adopt mass mail-in balloting of the kind that made chaos in the 2020 election mail-in ballots are proven to be much more susceptible to fraud as bipartisan federal election integrity commission chaired by former president Jimmy Carter folks figured that out way back in 2005 and released it saying we need to either stop it or get very serious about enforcing the way it's operated. That's because mail-in ballots provide more opportunities to influence, obtain, and traffic in ballots. In one recent example, during a 2017 City Council election in Dallas, investigators found one person had signed 700 mail-in ballots, more than the total vote difference between competing candidates at the time. During the 2020 election in Wisconsin, officials took Bart in ballot trafficking and using drop boxes for mail-in ballots, which a judge later ruled violated the law. In Michigan, this very highly partisan organization directly affected voting rules. In the emails, McReynolds suggested that the Secretary of State use administrative rulemaking to implement a permanent absentee voting option in the state. Administrative rulemaking means making regulations based on an interpretation of the law, often yielding regulations that are different from the law's original intent, sometimes its explicit text. I was thinking you may have rulemaking authority, Mick Reynolds wrote in an email. The language below indicates that voters have a right to vote without giving a reason, which to me has left open the possibility of permanent or election-specific absentee requests. To me, this means you don't likely need a legislative change. Thanks, Amber, the Secretary of State Benson said, looping in Jonathan Brader and Mike Brady from our legal and policy team. Brader served as Benson's legal policy director in 2019. Brady began working as her chief legal director in February of 2019. Benson named Brader director of elections in 2019, Do you follow this? I know this is tedious. I know this is not a fun thing to talk about. But folks, what has happened is Zuckerberg has gone after way down deep in the fiber, the actual foundation of states' election processes and is finding ways to talk people in these election, I'm talking about county by county, city by city, getting these people to very surreptitiously and quietly change the election infrastructure. And guess what? They don't have the authority to do it. According to the United States Constitution, the structure of the election process in every state, which means county, city, town, borough, whatever it is, the state, has the sole authority to regulate the election processes, which means it's got to go through state legislators. It's got to go through the legislation in each state if they want to change it, and it's got to be approved there. No secretary of state, no voting commissioner, not even a governor has the legal right to change any part of the process of voting in any state in America. We told you the other day about the court findings in Michigan, uh, excuse me, in Wisconsin. We've told you about Arizona. We've told you about Pennsylvania. And now Michigan, it happened in all of those very critical states in the 2020 elections. This is not, this has nothing to do with thinking about going back and changing things back there. That's not what this is about. This is about understanding it happened, It's happening, and it is impacting the results of our elections. And we have a very critical one coming up in November. Not that all elections are not critical. And I doubt very seriously if this has been straightened up or will be straightened up in time for that election. Wow. So, you know, these, these, um, fossil fuel CEOs have been under fire. We had two of them on the show yesterday that explained how the process goes, where they are not the ones and they really don't have the power or the authority to raise the price of gasoline in the way that it's being raised. It comes from a daisy chain of one on top of another of policies that begin at the top, that begin in the White House, begin with our president. Well, Democrats in Congress They're headed into elections and they're scared to death about what voters are going to do because of what they're paying for gasoline. Democrat Republicans Mike Thompson, John Larson, Lauren Underwood are proposing a plan similar to the COVID relief payments. Huh. In the bill, a bill that they proposed, couples would receive $200 plus $100 for each dependent, a one-time, hey, we're going to help you with your gasoline for a few. Americans are feeling the impact at the pump of Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine, and right now we must work together on common-sense policy solutions to ease the financial burden that my constituents are feeling. That's Thompson. The Putin price hike is putting strain on our economy, I'm proud to be working with Representatives Larson and Underwood to introduce this legislation to provide middle-class Americans with monthly payments to ease the financial burden of this global crisis. Now, where is their insanity in that? Where is it? It's full of it. It's full of it. First of all, Putin had nothing to do... <laughs> absolutely nothing to do with the price of gas at the pump. Long before this Ukraine thing ever even came up, our gas prices began to rise dramatically. And they began to rise way before Ukraine and Russia. Why were they doing that? Because of policy. Because of policy that was put in place by President Biden. And as those two Experts told us yesterday, policy creates an environment for business. And if government is supportive of businesses and is not just clamped down, we hate you, and then demanding you to produce goods and products for them, if they're in it with the businesses, it will work. And it's not just fossil fuel. It's everything. But when whoever's in charge in the government is susceptible at any time to change the rules. Businesses aren't going to invest. They're not going to pay the price that they have to pay. Only will happen when they're in a partnership with government. And that's exactly what's going on. That's an end to the week here at TNN Live. Thanks for being here. You guys have a great weekend. And don't forget, tomorrow, Saturday, Saturday Bullet Points. You can catch up on the top stories of the week. We do that every Saturday. Anyway, whatever and however you spend your weekend. Enjoy it. Be with family and those you love. See you Monday. When you're down
3: and in trouble And you need some love and care And nothing, all oh, well, nothing is going right Close your eyes thinking, yes, and soon I will be there to brighten up even your darkest night. You just call. Winter, spring, summer of all. Really, all you gotta do is call. And I will be there again. Yes, I'll be there. You've got a friend. If the sky above. just call.